0: for not being here in person last week, Um, and thanks to all who made it possible to at least Skype for a portion of it. Jack, you were reading so beautifully, and I couldn't hear a word of it. (laughs) Um, Uh, You you know, it's always good to have a friend, right? (laughs) So what I want to do, Michael apparently is sick today, so we're going to check in on the practice of confession But what I'd like to do is actually start with a recap, because today's our tipping point. Um, We go into the lion's den today, um, but with that, we complete what are called the court narratives, the first six chapters of Daniel, and we tip into the apocalyptic literature next week, Um, and more about that in a little bit. So let's go ahead and let's gather with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Holy One, thank you. Thank you for the ways in which you speak to us through the centuries. Thank you for the reality that your word still shapes and forms us, speaking with relevance and immediacy into the time and place in which we find ourselves. And so we gather, seeking to live faithfully in this time, seeking to be your people. All this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Oh, great. (gasps) He is here. On confession. David, it is. No, no. He was going to do a recap on confession. Did he go again? All right, we're still going to do our recap, and, um, and then we'll get to confession. So, folks, I'm just going to see who's coming in the door. Good morning. Hi, would you like to give a recap on um, the, our conf- habit for last week on confession? Okie dokie. Actually, what I would like to do is get us there before we tip into six. Would that be okay? Do a confession. Ooh, Michael. <laughs> all right. Next week, Michael's going to tip us into eschatology, but I don't want you all to worry about that. What I want you to be looking for is realizing that there are still direct parallels between the first six chapters and the second six chapters as we live into them. And I'm going to give you a little hint in terms of preparation for next week. There is a direct relationship between chapter 2 and chapter 7. So what I would like you to do, just to kind of look ahead before we get into today, is actually read both chapters. Don't try to tackle them down to the ground. Allow them to shape and form you. But look for patterns. Look for similarities. Look for the ways in which God is moving in Daniel's life um, and in Babylon's life. The other thing I want to say as we continue to um, focus on practices um, and holy habits, if you um, will, is that the practices themselves don't transform us we know that right it is god who transforms us but but the practices can open us up to the ways in which god can be at work in our life so if you remember we began with all of the brightest and best of Israel being carried into exile. And Daniel, even as a young man, I would suggest that his brain wasn't fully developed, had the um, ability to resolve and to sift between not simply good and bad, but but what was faithful. And for Daniel, um, to fast from the king's table allowed him to remain in a faithful relationship with his God. So we talked a little bit about the power of habits. We talked about the fact that there will always be a cue. Something will trigger us. And we have a choice whether to respond through a holy habit that will deepen our relationship with God in Christ or to get taken off into an amygdala hijack. And remember, we've talked about those places where we can, anxiety can reign in our lives. And likely, the trigger that really moved us as a child is probably still going to be at work in our lives as an adult. So, those triggers fight. Some people immediately get into debate. It doesn't have to be a nasty fight, but they're just going to debate a point. Um, I'm married to a recovering trial attorney. And in the early years, <laughs> high there of our marriage, Dick would, uh, Dick is really good on his feet, and I swear he has really helped me to refine being on my feet too, because he would say something, and you know, it'd be like, well, dang it all, I want to go ponder it in my heart, And um, but so fight, flight, we can all think of people who just kind of like, oh, I'm out of here, you know, where'd they go? I have an aunt cannot stand conflict of any sort and so we could be in the middle of a dinner and a family debate has come up and all of a sudden Anna's washing dishes we're not even through with dinner yet can I take your plate fight flight freeze my father-in-law had Alzheimer's in his later years he was also a trial attorney Um, and Gus would come into a room and Freeze because he had literally forgotten in the movement from one room to the next what he had come into the room for. Sometimes anxiety can make us just totally forget everything fight, flight, freeze, frenzy. All of us can think about people in our lives where it's do something, do anything when, in fact, the psalmist reminds us to be still and know that God is God. And then the most popular one that seems to really be getting a lot of attention in the media today is fornication. We're not going there. But it's real, because we act out, and we want to, um, you know, just kind of get out of the anxiousness of it all. So I really want you to hold... Um, with the reality that amidst all the anxiety of having by foot traveled hundreds of miles, um, being pulled away from his home and his people, ripped from his identity, Daniel is able to resolve that which is faithful so that even in the midst of exile, he can remain centered in God and in God's word. So, they're going to be triggers, cues. And those cues then in turn shape a routine. That's where the practices, where the holy habits come in, where we allow those habits, and there are going to be different habits for different seasons of our life to shape and form us and keep us intimately in relationship with God and Christ. So the reward, of course, for Daniel and his faithfulness in his resolution is that he is able to stay connected with God, even in exile, even when nothing seems to make sense. So we've talked about the core practice of prayer and fasting, and, and that fasting isn't necessarily from food, although, quite frankly, in our food junkie culture, there is something to be said for that. At one point, um, uh, I, <laughs> I love this, uh, C.S. Lewis actually said, it would be as ridiculous as having a food station on the television. Food network. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, and so here's the reality, folks. We do need constantly to ask, you know what, even if it's good in and of itself, is distracting me from my relationship with God and Christ? So then we get to Dreams. And in the second chapter, we're looking at the reality that dreams are indeed God's forgotten language, and that if we trust our dreams, we can actually, um, God will speak to us. Of course, we've got a little bit of a challenge in this chapter because it's not Daniel's dreams, it's Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, and he's not sharing any of the details. But you know, it's amazing. Haven't you ever had the experience where you are thoughtfully listening to somebody and you have a sense of what they're really trying to say. They're not saying it, partly because they're not sure they want to say it. They might feel a little Say, but you know, and you find yourself saying something, you're like, why on earth am I saying that? But it's exactly what that person needs to engage in the conversation. I'm seeing a few nodding heads. And so in this one, we see how that centering through prayer and fasting allows um, Daniel, with wisdom and tact, in another high-anxiety moment, to say, could you tell me what's going on? Why is it that you want to kill all the chief musicians and magicians and sorcerers and advisors to the king? And he's able to draw out the, um, what's actually going on with the king and to ask for a reprieve. And then he doesn't do it alone. Together we are the body of Christ and individually members of Christ's body. How often do we feel like it's all our responsibility? That was never God's intent. Daniel goes to those three friends, and together they encompass and surround him in prayer, and he is given the wisdom that is needed to actually bring the king down from his amygdala hijack. And restore some functioning, if you will, to the kingdom of Babylon. Because when we got a crazy king, we got a crazy kingdom. We kind of know that, don't we? So I want you to hear again, it is out of those intentional practices that Daniel has the habit of staying in relationship with God that allows him out of the center of his being to be calm and to bear calm in a time of high anxiety. The king who has everything is not calm. Are we tracking with all of this? So then we go from there. So we've got Daniel resolves with wisdom and tact. And we, we talked about prayer and fasting and prayer partners. We get to temptation and challenge. How many times in any given week, are we asked to trade out our identity in Christ? And usually it's in very little ways. Remember, for Daniel, it began with, look, the king is providing the same food that he would eat. What would be wrong with that? Now, Daniel and his friends have risen in power and recognition. They are going to faithfully serve um, in exile. They're not shutting down they're seeking ways in which to give testimony to who their god is even as they serve this pagan king and so recognition has come for the three friends daniel is actually taking a little break he's stage left he's um, not in this scene and the three friends are going ain't happening That will compromise my faith if I bow down. Culture of seduction. not going to save my skin. Furthermore, I trust that God's going to get us out of this. We don't know how. And, of course, we're going to come back to a a parallel in chapter 6 in just a moment. But we know that God's at work in the midst of this. So whatever happens, even if we die, we're not bowing down. Throw us in. And of course, that's where we get the prefigurement of the Christ figure in this chapter. And we have this sense that in the midst of the deepest crises, God abides with us. So think about your own journeys. Think about the times when you have felt most vulnerable and most alone, and how God has come into those moments. Dallas Willard, who is... Uh, just one of my all-time favorite people, in fact, one of my favorite birthday surprises for Dick was to put him in the car and drive him up to Azusa Pacific. We were living in San Diego at the time, um, just to hear Dallas speak at lunch. He was the most gracious of people. And what Dallas said is, is when you abide and dare to dwell, the reality of that place, that person, that experience shapes and forms you. So if you abide in darkness, you're going to live a pretty dark life. But if you dare in the midst of darkness to abide in God, then the light shall not be overcome by the darkness, and you shall dwell in the light. Daniel and his friends were able to abide. And so we have the fiery furnace, and and in that we have temptation and challenge, And because of the habits, more to the point of the relationship born of the habits, they're able to remain faithful in the midst of this. And so we reflected on what it means to trust. And you had my confession that I have never not known God. I'm one of those people that has always had the gift of knowing God, but that doesn't mean that there aren't those places where I feel like I need to do it in the supply of my own power. I've got this, God! As opposed to submission to God in which, in that place, not of distrust, but of surrender, we allow God to work. There are times in our lives where we simply need to let go of something so that God can do what God does best. Um, And that is, Bring transformation into our lives. Um, So from there, Dave took you through humility or humiliation. There are times when we're all going to mess up. I don't know, well actually I do. I have a sense of where we've messed up as Christians And it is in the mistranslation of the word teleos, which means wholeness, completeness. But we, through the King James Version, translated it perfection. Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we got into this plastic perfection of defining it from human terms. But in fact, the translation is be you whole. And wholeness, as modeled through Jesus, is only born out of our brokenness. That is the paradox of our faith. Death precedes resurrection. Wholeness is found out of our brokenness. And it's modeled to us every time we gather at the table, such that the bread is taken, it is blessed, and it is broken. And the only way that it can be shared is if it is broken. Are you all tracking with me? I mean, because there I want you to I mean, see how dense Daniel is? Isn't it amazing what these youth model to us? And their brains weren't fully developed. I say it again. But you know, for Nebuchadnezzar, it took seven years. We can get pretty stubborn about things. And God is going to be patient with us as we have our stubborn moments. And he was reduced to the status of a beast. But finally comes to his senses. You know, we might think about um, the parable of the prodigal. You know, once that independence runs away to a foreign country, is eaten with the pigs, everything against the Jewish dietary laws, when he finally comes to his senses, and the prodigal God is there to welcome that son home. So a piece of what I want to say, because boy, it's way too easy to focus it out there, is, folks, when we find ourselves in those places of mess, when we've gotten disconnected from God, never doubt that the prodigal God is waiting to welcome us home, to restore us. Humility or humiliation, and and with that came relinquishment, And part of that relinquishment is relinquishing our egos so that we can allow our core identity to find its center in God. Next week, we're going to talk about centering prayer. Um, But I have this necklace, and there are three circles. And um, centering prayer has been described as three circles. So there's the part of you that everybody sees, And then there's the part of you or me that we know. We know, but nobody else really knows. And then there's the part of us that only God knows. A piece of the journey is to allow God to do God's work in and through us so that our core identity might remain in Christ, our characters might be transformed, we might live into that place of call, even in exile. And I want you to note, and then, only then do we begin to nurture and develop the functional competencies. Identity first, function second. And there is God to welcome even Nebuchadnezzar. And in that moment, Nebuchadnezzar recognizes God. Then we get the righty on the wall. It's another generation. And there is no humility with the grandson Of Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, there is only hubris. And his days are numbered, his actions are weighed, and he is found wanting, and he dies that night. Where there is no humility, where there is no emptying, Philippians 2, empty yourself. Not that you're going to remain empty, but that you might be filled with Christ becomes a piece of the movement. And with that, oh, he's got a microphone, we came to confession.
1: And Good morning. So last week we discovered, uh, as Dave and I were flying by the seat of our pants last week a little bit, uh, we talked about writing on the wall, and Debbie has already uh, uh, talked about that here some, but Belshazzar, the, the feeling in the chapter and what we took from it is that he needs to confess, and so we try to inhabit confession. Now, some of you had the packets, uh, or, uh, and some of you did not, so we kind of had two invitations. Um, I don't think Debbie knew about this, but uh, since some of you did not have these packets, we, uh, we had the, the Jesus prayer. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That was something we could inhabit even without a packet. Uh, Did anybody have uh, an opportunity, or did that that come back to you throughout the week that somebody would want to share how that formed you this week?
0: Can I tell Uh, a story? Sure. (laughs) So (laughs) um, the first time I made a formal confession um, was when I had a spiritual director at Yale and I felt like, and I was getting married. And I felt like I wanted to just kind of let go of any gunk um, before, I, um, before Dick and I got married. So I said to Julia, I wanted to make a formal confession. She was um, a, a part of the order of the Society of St. John the Evangelist and, um, and an Episcopal priest. And so we were working with the rite of reconciliation. Our Book of Common Worship hadn't brought a lot of pieces back together yet. Well. I prepared for it, and I got on the road to go see Julia, and then I decided that I really could take a, there would be a better path for me to take see Julia, (laughs) so instead of taking the most direct path, I took a path that took me three
2: hours,
0: (laughs) and believe me, folks, I mean, it really wasn't that bad, but for me, it was like, oh, my Lord, I feel so vulnerable, Um, and I get there, oh, no, and then along the way, I'm like, oh, you know what, it's lunchtime, (laughs) So I stop and have fast food. I never eat fast food. And then I get there, and it's lunchtime, and Julia goes, it's lunchtime, you must be hungry, and she's got yogurt and fresh fruit out, and I was too embarrassed to tell her I would already eaten. So I have this yogurt. At this point, I'm feeling nauseous because I've had this fast food that I don't eat. And, um, and so, but then you know, we come to the time when I actually have to make this confession, And it was the most freeing and most beautiful experience. Um, But I still go back to, what was I so afraid of? I mean, how wacky wonky is that? Um, And and just, oh, and I just was drenched. By the time I finished, I had sweat through everything. Aren't you glad for the graphic of that? (laughs) But... As a result of that experience, any time I've gone through a major transition, I have made a point of actually making a formal um, confession. And my training as a spiritual director was through the Society of St. John the Evangelist. And um, Martin Smith, who was actually the superior at the season in which I was doing my work with them, wrote a book on preparing for confession that's just beautiful. Uh, and, And part of it is, Getting beyond any false sense of shame to know that we are there is nothing we can do that will separate us from the love of God. No, nothing Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't that bad, <laughs> wasn't that bad?
1: No sweating <laughs> blood. Okay. <laughs> oh boy,
0: yeah, exactly.
1: So now that Debbie's given us some more time to think on our own confession, beyond this this short prayer that uh, we may have memorized or maybe not, but we inhabited a little bit at least last Sunday, did anyone who had the packet uh, go into preparing that life uh, review over that designated period, or have we started that? Anything about confession that we want to share or lift up could be from this week, it could be uh, from from. A few years ago, memorable experiences of how confession has shaped us.
0: We're feeling vulnerable.
2: <laughs> Edith? Um, I. Don? Okay. So, um, uh, my, um, a point of reference um i didn't i didn't focus on this this week i'm afraid um but um I- in in a uh, relationship in my family that had been um somewhat broken and feeling um in imp- the impression from the holy spirit of the importance of my um taking ownership of my part in the tension of that relationship and um for quite a while, I resisted that, including having the my husband 's cheerleader saying don 't do it <laughs> don 't be vulnerable you you 're going to get squashed um, it 'll be used against you and um, after wrestling with God for years <laughs> um, I, yeah um i uh, I finally approached um, this family member and um it, it became a very healing thing, um, which I think is a different confession to confess to the person directly, <laughs> as opposed to going to a third party. But um, mm-hmm. uh, from that, uh, you know, God brought healing and, and restoration. So,
1: thank you, Edith. So. So as what Edith shares with us demonstrates, what what that demonstrates is that confession takes many shapes. It's not just journaling about uh, confession. It's not just saying a a formal prayer or, you know, going to God at night on our knees and praying for every single thing we've ever done wrong in our whole life and listing it out uh, until we're... Uh, soaked through our clothes with sweat or blood or, or <laughs> grease or whatever the case may be, right? Uh, the, the point is that we are coming, as we, as we talked about last week, confession invites God in so that together, God and we can look at our sins and our lives together and be vulnerable before God. Whatever shape that takes, uh, confession is a trans- transformative journey. Not a single moment, but a journey how do we confess, how do we come before God and be in relationship with God and seek reconciliation?
0: Thank you. Oh, one more.
3: Say the
4: last part again.
3: Joanne reminds me when it's time for me to say confession. <laughs> you need to confess your, I use some bad words once in a while, and you need to confess that to God. There you go. sometimes I wonder if I do it right, um, because I've always, you get the sense that you, in the church in Traverse City, there was a major blow-up, and um, and the church moved on, I mean, we all moved on, but you know how when you've got something sitting back there that really hasn't been resolved, it just continues to eat at you and eat at you, and so finally, after a little therapy, uh, the last of which was a, a moment of of confession, a process of confession for me. Um, what surprises me is that, although I, I I really do believe I've gone through that process of forgiveness, I've I I understand the dynamics that were going on. I've certainly received God's grace and and have lived into that in in my prayer life in terms of that whole situation since then. But what I do find also is that. I still need to confess it that there are times I will find I will use that event in the past in that particular event to of all the kind of warped things to energize myself that I can I can well up all of the bad feelings that I had all of the uh, negative energy um, in service to another goal or task it's not healthy it's not good and it always calls me to go back and reflect uh, on the event at a deeper, deeper level, perhaps a, certainly a more significant way, and go through that process again, even though it's still for the same. So maybe I'm not doing it right because it wasn't once and forever. It continues. It's a continues to be a process for well, me. Well,
0: it's ever deepening, don't yeah. you think?
4: Along the same lines as as you, David, um, a number of years ago, I had a phone call from someone that was kind of making a confession to me about um, some feelings that uh, that they had, and and they were, I think, going through the process of confession and kind of kind of letting it go. And I can remember; I mean, it was just like. Amazing to me. I mean, I just stood there on the phone listening and just crying and crying because I had no idea. I mean, I was clueless, which, you know, I can be. And I remember it impacting me um, to the point where, uh, similar to Edith, uh, a family member that, you know, just we were rubbing knuckles um, for years. And I just, I couldn't let go of the anger. It was something I didn't really understand, and and I, I just couldn't let go of it. Well, I, f- I finally, I think after that, reflected and was able to do the same thing. And I talked with, uh, this was my sister, actually, one of my sisters. So, you know, really close family member. And we we talked it through, but back to Dave there have been times when in my insecurity i have found myself wondering again you know well why you know why is she reacting this way and and you know what what's wrong i thought we were okay and now i'm having these feelings of insecurity again so it's like you have to constantly go back and let it go yeah you have to let it go because it's it's you that it's hurting you you know, they may not even be aware of something that they said or did or whatever hurt you. So you just have to be grown up and let it, you know, let it go.
0: Well, but I also think it's a growing awareness, too. You know, so it's like, oh, I wasn't aware of this aspect of it or this feeling of it and letting it go. I mean, in that sense, it's parallel to grief. That we don't, I mean, I will never stop grieving my father's death, ever, Um Does that mean I don't live life fully? No, but um, and and I will say, when I was pregnant with Elizabeth, it was another wave of deep, deep grief because he wasn't going to be there to greet her, and I had the most wonderful dream where these two babies. uh, My mother had this group of women she had lunch with every Friday, and um, Friday lunch it was their therapy group, and uh, among other things. And, um, and whenever the adult women were back in town, we were all included in Friday lunch, and Elizabeth hadn't been born yet, but I had this dream that she was born, and she was in her car seat, and there was another baby in a car seat, and these two babies were put on a table while all the women gathered for lunch, and they just had the best time. And I realized that that baby was my father, and that my father did indeed know her. Um, and, you know, and in God's providence and God's time and God's mystery, all things. And so I think the same thing in our healing of, um, you know, where there has been, um, in, in, in terms of that journey of restoration of relationship, you know, it, it doesn't happen all at once. I just love how you tip me into where we're going next. Oh, all right. Okay, good. Because the truth is, all of us um, are afforded opportunity to uh, nurture our emotional and spiritual intelligence. And the reality is there are always going to be challenges in life. So just real quick, remembering um, that it is our relationships that shape and form us, That there are core practices that we know through study. Mindfulness, compassion, hope, play. But really, as the body of Christ, we know them as we seek the mind of Christ. As we are clothed with compassion. As we bear hope of the resurrection, even in the most um, challenging of circumstances. And, you know, Michael preached on it when he talked about the Stockdale Paradox. It's not that you give up hope. You acknowledge the reality of where you are, but you know that there's a deeper hope and that God is in the work of that. Um, And then, of course, that laughter, joy, playfulness, that's delight. And as the psalmist reminds us, when we dare to delight ourselves in the Lord, in season and out of season, it's then um, that we are healed. And God will indeed heal the desires of our life. So folks, why are we looking at this? Because this is about our leadership as incarnational Christians. It is about the transformation of our community. Um, and that God's call to us is not just to gather on Sunday morning and have an interesting study, but through the nurture of practices and habits to grow ever closer to God and through that to be able to bear Christ into our community. I'm not going because I want us to have time. Um, We're going to skip that, and we're going to skip that for right now, and we're going to skip that, and now we're here, because there's just not enough time. We'll come back, though. Um, There are, as I said, going to be direct parallels as we tip into the second half of Daniel. Already, we're in a parallel. So, you know, we think about the fiery furnace, and now we think about the lion's den. The friends were asked, actually... Uh, to bow down to a statue. They were, um, so if you think about omission and commission in our confession, we have the friends being asked to actually just, you know, trade out that God of yours and bow down. Here, Daniel is being told not to pray. Oh, Daniel, it's only 30 days. Come on now. You can let go of your prayer life with God for 30 days. And it is indeed a setup. So once again, we're dealing with professional jealousy. We're dealing with the reality that the men with whom, and they were men, uh, that Daniel and his friends worked with were ego-driven and survival-driven. Their core identity was not shaped and formed through their relationship with God. It was shaped and formed through the pleasing of a king who remained very anxious about his credibility ratings, his leadership ratings, if you will. Isn't it interesting that the one who seems to, in human terms, have everything is the one who is anxious? And so we have Darius, who is now king, in the opening chapters, um, saying we got to keep an eye on things and make sure everything's under control. So we have 120 satraps, 120 leaders distributed out among the provinces to make sure that everybody is uh, staying connected. They are not trying to uh, create an uprising against the king. They are going to um, you know, play by the company rules. And over those 120, there are three who supervise the 120, and Daniel's one of the three. Well, you know, Daniel's a foreigner. Daniel's not one of them. He doesn't go in the back room and gossip with them. Daniel, through his integrity, makes his peers very uncomfortable. So, quick piece of movement of the text, and then what I want us to do um, is actually, uh, we're going to go to 10 through 18. So so the plot is set up. Remember, this is a court drama from a literary perspective, in verses 1 through 9. In 10 through 18, the trap is established. In 19 through 24, we find Daniel thrown into the lion's den, even though the king is it doesn't wish it at, o- at all. Um, and there is rescue of Daniel and ultimately demise of those who tried to take him down. And then we end in the final three verses with the king's decree. The theme is consistent through these first six chapters there is the insecurity of human government, um, there's tremendous corruption in the king's palace. Note, as we read this, actually what I'm going to do is highlight some verses because I want us to have some table time. So note as we read this, that um, the king always trusted Daniel. The king never doubted Daniel's um, integrity. Note also, and remember from last week, that at this point Daniel's old enough to be forgotten by many. Daniel's really seeking to to work in the background. This is not an ego-driven attempt. He is seeking to simply do the work that is asked of him. Um, The other thing I want you to note, and the reason we took all this time to kind of look at the first six chapters, is not just in preparation for tipping into the apocalyptic literature, but it's also to look at the fact that the temptation to compromise is never, ever, An isolated event. Daniel was asked to compromise with the food. Daniel was asked to compromise to become one of the boys. Each time, there is a clarity, and Daniel is able to let his yes be yes and his no be no, because he knows who and whose he is. The other thing I would add is that all of the previous challenges have prepared him for this moment. You know, we look at these heroic moments, but the reality is what we need to do is look back over the course of a person's life that prepares them for that moment of time. Because invariably, it is a piece of God's journey. So, going to highlight for you in verse 3, Daniel distinguishes himself above all the others. And they don't really like that. And they try to find grounds for complaint against Daniel, but they can find no grounds for complaint because he was faithful and there was no negligence or corruption found in him in verse 4. So they went and said, you know what? The only way is to establish, um, we're going to find it in connection with the law of his God. Folks, if we fast forward to Jesus' earthly journey, how is his crucifixion brought about? Remember, it is that movement um, through the whole of one's life that prepares one for these moments. And so they um, establish an ordinance, they enforce An edict of the king's that even the king himself cannot undo. And the king tries to undo it. So in verse 11, having established the edict, they go and they wait for Daniel to bow down in prayer. Because you know his rhythm, his pattern of being is known at large to the whole community. They know that he is going to bow down looking toward Jerusalem to his God, to our God. And they've got them. The king is unable to undo it, which I find interesting. In fact, the conspirators come to the king and say, in verse 15, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no interdict or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Folks, that's crazy. Hmm, imagine that. So, in Daniel goes... And the king goes back to uh, the palace and spends the night in prayer and fasting. The next day comes back, and stone is rolled away. Hmm. And we find that Daniel is fine. He is alive. And at that point, the king orders the death, not only of those who accused Daniel, but of their entire family. And then in the end, he makes a decree that in all his royal dominion, now at verse 26, people should tremble and fear before God, for he is the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion have no end. All right, I want us to take some time to reflect on the text at table about the different ways in which God meets us in the lion's den, in our lion's den, and in our fiery furnaces. Sometimes God's going to deliver us, especially in our early years, that our faith might be built. Other times, God's going to carry us through the fire that our faith might be refined. Other times, we are going to journey with Jesus through trial and temptation that we might indeed um, be ever refined as tra- degree by degree, 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18, we are transformed into the image of God. Now there's a piece I want to note here, because I think Daniel's parents must have done a really good job. Daniel knew who he was. That doesn't happen without the grace-saturated embrace. Then comes the love and testing. It's not that Daniel didn't have any love and testing ahead of the lion's den. And then we have all these years where Daniel has engagement in his call. The sacramental life, the sacrificial journey, is what comes as we dare to live into full maturity with God. And it is going to put us, at times, at odds with the culture in which we live. So you've got in your packet um, questions. Um, and I want you to kind of hold in both Daniel 3 and Daniel 6. Some believe that times of trial are due to sin or lack of faith. How do the trials found in Daniel 3 and 6 inform our understanding of trial and tribulation? What can we conclude about the character of the four men, and how might that inform our character transformation? And what commitments can we make that will prepare us for the fiery furnaces, the lion's den, the sacramental journey that will come to each one of us? Let's take about five minutes at table, and then we're going to come back um, and we're going to actually look at our core practice of doxology, not in the absence of challenge but in the very midst of it. We're going to, um, I'm sorry to do this but Dave needs to talk to us about doxology and then we'll come back to your table conversations and any insights. that way it releases you.
3: Yeah, I've got, you know, we've got baptism, worship, stuff like that happening here today so I'm going to interject here. Um, We're talking earlier about delight. The the king, I kind of get the feel that he's he's got some schizophrenia. Maybe that's the wrong term. Bipolar, whatever. He's he's all over the map. One day he's he's praising God, and the next moment he's insecure and he's trying to figure out how to get his um, how to please those actually that are under him. Somebody said he just seems like he's got no ego strength. He's no self confidence. He's got all this power, but it's not there. Um, and so he's he's playing these games to shore himself up. Um, and I think it's a game we all play uh, ourselves. That that um, there are those times and those seasons where um, we just grow. Unsure of ourselves and have many different ways of, of dealing with it, um, the spectrum is there for us to 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 choose um, but the king always seems to come back to this this praise this doxology is the word we 're using, and one would hope that that through through seeing Um, what is happening through Daniel, that at some point you break through and come to understand that all is well, God is here. And not only for the nation, but for individuals. All is well, God is here. One of the things, a tool, that I, I find very useful for me, when I remember to use it, Um, list making but particular list making Um, you've all heard of a gratitude journal haven't you at this point keeping track of, of the things that you give thanks for and particularly on these gray and foggy wintry cold icky is the that's a biblical term, icky. Times. It's so easy to just become a downer. To be down. Um, to not be able to see grace as it appears. To see blessings that are right in front of our faces. And so the practice of doxology, the, the practice of giving thanks, is talk about Formation, Because we know the more we hear something, the more it takes hold of us, the more it grabs us, the more it forms us. Um, so to keep the blessings in front of us, um, to, to continuously bear for ourselves the grace that is in front of us every day, Um, To write it down, to pray over it, to practice mindfulness um, is a practice of doxology for me. It's hard on days like today to get yourself up and moving sometimes. And yet, if you take five minutes and simply look, ask the question where is God he's here where is he what's God doing what's God's about what blessings have I have I really partaken in these last 24 48 72 hours whatever Uh, it's it's an in the moment thing for me it's not a you know God gave me Jeannie 23 24 years ago God gave me Zach 20 years ago God gave me Allie 18 years ago no the last 24 hours, the last 48 hours, the last 72 hours, God's been there. So the practice of, of delighting in God and what God has done, you don't think that has power to shape who you become or how you live day by day and what kind of light you live in? Give this a try this week. Mindfulness as to how God is working and, and, and how wonderful that is. You, know, you don't even have to make it up, just how wonderful it is. But it is mindfulness, yeah. In here that really hit me. Yes. And that, to be sure, choosing joy is a discipline. I highlighted that too. Joy is a discipline. It's something we have to practice. Not to, you know, Jeannie and I go through this thing. Because I always see the glass half full. She always sees it half empty. We know that about ourselves. Um, but even those of us who see the glass half filled know that the other half is empty. So nobody's immune to it. we all. Uh, and, and to realize that that's a grace of God. To shape you, and form you, to grow you into maturity. A simple thing like gratitude, but it's powerful. To make to make a discipline, you have to make a choice, and then you have to exercise yeah. a will. And and so that joy starts as a choice, and and it gets disciplined as a will. Yeah. Cho- choice. Um, well that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> But yeah, make a decision this week to do the practice, to practice the discipline. Um, you all, ought, if I were if I were really in a mood, I'd say y'all can't walk in this room next week without a sheet of paper. That should be full. Yeah. yeah. Write it down. Write it down. Give it a shot. Okay, we got to go. So Debbie wants me to offer the blessing, which which, is beautiful. My neighbor. As we go, may the Son of God, who is already formed in you, grow in you, so that for you, he will become immeasurable, and that in which he will become laughter, exaltation, and the fullness of joy which no one can take from you. It's rather beautiful. I'll adopt it as my own. Amen.